Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. Now, in this episode, we look back at over 300 episodes of this podcast. What's changed in the brewing world? What have we enjoyed? And what do we lament? Time to fire up the Wayback Machine. But first, a message from our sponsors. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The Seltzer Sensation is here, and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making home-brewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer yeast and nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer recipe kits, which are formulated to make up to 5 gallons of refreshing 4.5% seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties, Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset. All right, and welcome back, everybody. And as always, remember, if you interact with any of our sponsors, please tell them that you heard about them here on The Brew Files. The last time we did a reflection episode, like this one's going to be, was episode 100 of The Brew Files way back in April of 2021. Remember April of 2021? Weren't we so much younger back then? (laughs) No, I was the same age. (laughs) Here we are about a year and a half later. And part of the reason to do a reflection episode now on such an oddly numbered episode is because this is actually 300 total episodes of the show. Uh, so between the main show and this show, we've now put out 300 episodes of this thing. Drew calls experimental brewing the main show. So uh, if you weren't familiar with that, that's what he was talking about. Yeah, sorry. I'm using my own terminology here. I, I need to update the runtime tracker because last time I checked, this was running somewhere around like eight or no, actually like 10 work weeks worth of content. <laughs> and what I mean by that is you could put us on, assuming you work five days a week, eight hours a day, and you listen to us all eight hours for five days a week, you could listen to every episode in about 10 weeks and never repeat. So, <laughs> And do you realize how much of our life we've wasted, uh, you know, the, that shows us? You say wasted. I say spend finally considering the weirder things of life. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll go with that. 
So speaking of considering the finer things in life, wanted to take a look back and see what exactly we've seen that's been changing, what we've seen that, well, you know, that's changed for us or in the industry in general. And so we thought we'd uh, head back through the whole fun of what people have been doing. And of course, we have to start with ingredients because beer is beer because of the ingredients. And to me, the fundamental ingredient of beer is malt. Mmm, malt. Mmm, donuts. Craft malt, last time we talked, was a thing. It's still a thing, and actually, we're really happy to see where it's at, because nowadays, it seems that every neck of the woods has a craft maltster around it. Yeah, it, it, it's really cool, man. Uh, when you're getting ready to make a beer now, I don't just look at the different hop varieties. I look at different malt varieties from different maltsters to see what they're going to bring to the beer, too, and it's really cool to have that to figure in. Not just in terms of the craft malt, but also now with the bigger guys bringing back some of the heritage malts. Weyermans had the Barca line of malts going forever and a dang day now, it seems like. What I do think is interesting to see is how Weyermann is actually expanding that whole line. And one of the ones I saw during our Oktoberfest season down here in LA was that it seemed like so many people were using the, the Barca Munich. The Barca itself already has kind of a breadiness to it. So Barca Munich is like bready, bready bread. Very interesting to see that, that happening. But, of course, the one I think that you and I got a lot of chance to play with and explore were those heritage malts from Crisp. Right. And I will say that, to me, the biggest one out of that was the Chevalier and just the amount of flavor that comes out of that malt. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. The Plumage Archer was very good. The uh, Hana I used to make my Belgian IPA recently, which is just stunning. And, and another one, uh, as long as you're talking big people, uh, is Rar North Star Pills. Mm -hmm. That is just a stunningly good malt. I made a couple triples with it, and I was very, very happy with that. So it, it's good to see the bigger players getting into kind of like their version of craft malt. And then on the other side, you know, from the uh, the bigger guys, although saying Crispin is is one of the bigger guys is kind of funny because I mean they're still relatively small. But on the on the small small side, obviously I've been playing around a lot recently with Sugar Creek, and what I think is interesting is to see some of these craft monsters like Sugar Creek start to emulate what a lot of craft breweries have done, which is kind of going, okay, fine, we'll let the big guys handle the normal stuff, right? You know, then there you have, yeah, okay, fine, we have a Pilsner, but Really, here's here's our bag. Our bag is the otter stuff. And so, like, with Sugar Creek playing around with, I mean, for me, it's been the malted corn. Uh, I think I'm now on beer number four made with malted corn. And I'm finding it to be really fascinating. It does have a very assertive profile, as Denny uh, discovered. Yeah, I have to admit that it's definitely not one of my favorites. But, uh, you know, I but I haven't actually brewed with it a at all, and uh, I've only had a few beers made with it, but uh, I, I do find it interesting, and if that's what you're looking for, it's a, a great thing to play with. Well, and the other thing I think Sugar Creek's been having a lot of fun with it, I know Caleb's just been in the in the smokehouse doing this, is making all sorts of traditional smoked malts, and not just like your usual sort of Rausch malt malt, but you know, making things for, you know, Estonian stone ales, or, you know, Norwegian farmhouse ales, and, and he's just having great fun playing around in the smokehouse and making different sorts of malts. So I highly recommend that you go check that out. And I think that's going to be a niche that we're going to see. I don't want to say grow. It's going to expand, but not like grow massively because there's only so much demand for these sort of stranger malts. But I'm happy to see them there. 
So moving on to hops, of course, I think, I mean, look, we, I think we spend more time talking about hops than any one person or any two people should do across multiple <laughs> lifetimes. No big surprise. Citrus still continues to dominate the American hop world. It's the largest acreage planted by far. So turns out citrus is a very versatile and useful hop. That's why. Cascade is kind of making a comeback too, I saw. So, you know, um, everything old is new again. I'll take it. Well, and you know, we keep joking about Brewer's Gold. And if Yakima Chief could keep giving us a clusterfuck it, I'd be happy. (laughs) Yeah, really. Uh, Let me see. What was, there's another one. Oh, Bitter Gold I've uh, used recently. And I really, really like that. But there's new varieties coming up all over the place. There's new hop products. There's a a new liquid kind of lupulin uh, product coming out of New Zealand called something, something Keef. Do you remember the name of that? No, but the one I saw was actually that they're about to make a new liquid phantasm. Oh, really? Oh, that that's interesting. I, I still haven't used what I've got. They're also in the hot variety world. There's newer things that we're seeing, like newer flavors. Like I think even from the last time we talked a year and a half ago, we're starting to see more and more coconutty type hops, which yep. I still haven't quite gotten my head around in terms no, of coconut and no, IPA. No, no. Yeah, I know, man. Sabro, the, the coconut and cedar and lime uh, character, it's like... Every time I use them, I'm going, I must be doing this wrong. Every time I taste them, I'm like going, you know where this would be awesome? A porter or stout. Yeah, maybe so. And I'm saying this as a guy who loves coconut. Like, literally, I have coconut strips as a snack that I eat all the time. Uh, But I I still have a hard time with coconut in hops. We couldn't talk about these tropical-flavored hops if we weren't also talking about the influence of Neo-Mexicanus on hops. And seeing Neo-Mexicanus getting included in crosses like the aforementioned Sabro. And mm-hmm. also, very interestingly, today I saw the news that Medusa has been pulled out of the uh, the hop yard. So Medusa being the original Neo-Mexicanus variety that was sort of made and grown out for people. Yeah, it was never very widely used anyway because uh, there are yield issues with it. So I, I don't consider the lack of Medusa a, a huge blow to the brewing world. No, not a huge blow, but it's kind of like going, oh, sail forth pioneer. <laughs> and then, of course, in, in using the hops, I would say that we've been seeing a huge shift towards shorter dry hop times. Uh, a lot of the time at colder temperatures, like uh, like I prefer to do. But in general, no matter what the temperature, people have started to realize that longer dry hop times are kind of counterproductive to getting the best out of your hops. Yeah, in fact, in the course of doing all these happy hours I've done for the Falcons and asking a lot of professional brewers what they're doing with their beers, yeah, more and more, it's 72 hours, maybe six days at the most for some of the older school breweries or older school Mm -hmm. ways of thinking. But nowadays, it's almost all exclusively like a three-day type dry hop with rousing involved too. Now, of course, at the professional level, they have to rouse via injecting CO2 or you know pulling the beer and pumping it back through. Uh, one of the great advantages that we have as a home brewer is if we want to rouse the hops, we can move the fermenter. Can't do and, that with a tin barrel. And generally, I would say at the homebrew level, there's just no advantage to doing that even. Now, the other thing I think that we've also seen is the increased emphasis, or actually, I mean, a year and a half ago, we were even talking, yeah, yeah, I think we were talking about it, but the increase in people using the concept of survivables. All that knowledge coming out of Yakima Chief talking about how you know the different compounds will survive 
for the boil through to the to the beer or where the hop varieties are more volatile and so helping people plan out how to better use their hops to maximize their impact and Denny I know you've been using this to great effect yeah I have uh, I've made several uh, IPAs now using the survivables chart and uh, from the uh, booklet from uh, Yakima Chief and uh, I'm I'm really really happy it's a great way to maximize the impact of your hops by knowing when to use what kind of hop and of course the other thing that people have been talking about more and actually I think really started to talk about was styles Thiol seems to be the hot, uh, the hot chemical compound on everybody's lips. Yeah, you know what? And like so many buzzwords, I'll be uh, interested to see if uh, what the staying power of this is like. I'm already hearing from people who go, you know, I tried a real heavy thiol beer and I hated it. <laughs> uh, you know, both making it and drinking it. So it'll be curious to see where this goes, whether it's a, a flash in the pan kind of trendy thing or whether or not it has actual staying power. And that's what people want their IPAs to be like. Or even I think where we'll probably land is it will probably become a, just another tool in the, in the shed. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I'd, I'd hate to see it go away completely, but I think that you may see some, you may see beers coming down where the thiols are more integrated into it and not just such an overwhelming slap in the face. Well, and speaking of thiols, that leads us into yeast because I think the the interesting one has been the rise of the GMO. Spooky music, please. Yeah. The rise of the GMO, and right now all the GMO stuff I've been seeing has been focused around two things, one of which is removing the diastaticus effect uh, for some Belgian yeast strains to, you know, different success levels, you know, in terms of like what it's actually doing to the final product. But that's really more of a commercial concern. The other one, of course, that goes in with the topic that we were just talking about with thiols is the big place where we're seeing a lot of people playing around with it has been making GMO yeast that help free thiols for expression, you know, to kind of unlock the potentials of compounds in your malt and in your hops to make even stronger, more fruity IPAs. And so thinking about back, looking back to the episode that we did with Berkeley Labs about their tropical series of yeast, or at the homebrew level, the ones that are available are the Omega strains. And Omega has, what, Cosmic Punch was the first one, and that was sort of their London 3 hazy strain. And then they got Star Party, which is sort of the Chico-esque uh, strain that does thiol. I've got I've got a pack of Star Party sitting in my fridge waiting to try it out when I get around to making my enhanced thiol beer, but uh, I haven't been able to get a hold of any uh, any cryo pop recently, so I'm just kind of waiting until I do. Well, and then the other thing I think we need to talk about yeast is quike, right? For a while there, everybody was quite crazy. And they still are to a, a very big extent. I mean, if you're in some of the homebrew groups I am, uh, I am surprised how often that comes up as people's solution to things. Um, you know, and it's interesting that I see a lot more people using it because it works at high temperatures mm-hmm. and it works fast than using it because of the flavors it provides. And, you know, that's not the way I pick a yeast. I think that's also part of the driving thing that we've seen in some of the selections around Quiker, where, you know, like Omega, for instance, is made uh, Lutra, 
or bootleg biology had Oslo, or mm-hmm. there are a couple of other people who have made sort of quote unquote clean quikes where they yeah. try and they try and harness all the advantages of quike, the high temperatures and the fast speed with less of what I always notice with most of the quike stranger, which is a very, a very strong phenolic note. And, and lots of fruitiness too. A lot of them have a very strong orange kind of flavor to it. So, hey, which can work with an IPA. Well, it, it can, but you know, on the other hand, uh, I wish people would just admit that. I'm tired of people telling me that, uh, quite can be clean because I mean, if it is, then somebody send me a clean quite beer, please. Well, and I'm really curious. I don't know about you, but like at least in my neck of the woods, I've tried a lot of people doing, um, sort of quite loggers or, you know, quite, uh, yeah, here, here right. the quotes around loggers. Yeah. And I mean, they've been good beers. A number of them have been good beers, but they never would quite in my mind work as a lager. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, again, when you talk to people who are advocating, say using quite for loggers and telling you it's clean, when you really start talking to them, it's like, well, it's pretty clean. You know, <laughs> it's like, wait, 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 wait. Which, by the way, I want to make sure that since we have a a nasty tendency to sound very negative about all this, Quike is really interesting. It's a great tool in the toolkit, and it can do some really nifty things, right? Yeah. Oh, I agree completely. I and mean, I don't mean to be negative about it. It's just not anything I'm personally interested in. But you know what? There's a lot of people out there brewing beer besides me. Right. Well, and I think my reaction to it is more how Quike was sort of touted almost as a universal panacea. Right. Oh, look, you know, get your hands on some quake. You'll never have to worry about your yeast health again. You'll never have to worry about your fermentation temperatures. It just works and it's mean and it will eat everything. Uh, it, it will make everything clean, small, dirty, large, you know, whatever. And I think just like what we're talking about with files, what a lot of the reaction I've been seeing from people was everybody was very enthusiastic to play with it. And over time they're developing places where it works or finding places yeah, where it right, works for them. Right. I mean, I remember seeing a, an article someplace. Uh, I don't remember it was in one of the homebrewing magazines or someplace else, but uh, the article was positing that you don't really even need any other yeast, but quite going into the future, there won't be any other yeasts. And it's like, well, that's silly. Well, but I mean, I get it. And, it, you know, look, if you can find a way to make Quike work for the flavors that you want, for the beers you want to drink, if it makes beers that you like, more power to you, buddy. It, it's home brewing. It's a hobby. Do what you want to do. Now, moving on to water, we've seen, or at least I've been saying, more and more people switching over to like sort of small RO systems at home. We're going to you know, be able to build whatever we want. I have to admit, I'm still not a fan of using RO water personally. And it's not because I don't like the idea of, hey, starting from a semi-blank or blank slate, you know, because I get it. It makes the math very nice and easy, and chemistry is a lot less hard. I'm just not a fan of RO systems. Yeah. um, You know, they seem to be uh, a lot of effort to to keep clean and do all the maintenance and everything. Uh, Fortunately, it's a, a moot point for me. Uh, but you know, a lot of people like them and I can see that if you're in some place uh, where your water's pretty extreme, it may be a good alternative to going out and buying water all the time. Yep. But again, like we say, not for us doesn't mean it won't be for you. And one thing I am very happy to report is I know Denny, you troll way more homebrew forums than I do, but 
I can't think of the last time I saw anybody with a lick of experience talk about emulating a city's water profile. Yeah. It, I mean, you see it once in a while still, but uh, not very often. Uh, kind, kind of like to uh, uh, the corollary to that that I see all the time also is that people say, if you're going to brew a lager, you got to have soft water. It's like, no, for certain types of lagers, maybe so. But for other types of lagers, you need just the opposite. So I'm, I'm really glad. I mean, and again, that comes to the fact, well, you know, Pilsen had soft water. So that's what all lagers need to use. Uh, people, again, like you said, are, are getting past the origin of the water and starting to think about the impact that the water has on the beer. Doesn't matter if you use the original ingredients, if you end up creating something that tastes like what you're going for. There we go. And now, Denny, I turn this over to you for your favorite rant of the day. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not really going to rant. The, the other thing that I, we've seen uh, over the course of the, the six years that we've been doing this show is, is a real emphasis on reducing oxygen exposure in, in your beer. Now, this is nothing new, people. 25 years ago, oxygen was <laughs> known to be a problem, and you were advised to avoid getting it into your beer as much as possible. Uh, what we've been seeing, though, is people going to extraordinary lengths, uh, some of which I feel are unnecessary lengths, but again, that's me, to prevent uh, oxygen exposure of their beer. Uh, it had just seems to be a much bigger deal than it was 25 years ago, even though everybody was aware of it then, but now everybody talks about it. So, yeah, I don't know. I would suspect some of that is because, I mean, it, stepping outside of the Lodo world, right? Where, I mean, that's all about German, uh, German beers and German malt flavor. Yeah. You know, I would suspect for the average homebrew, the reason why they're worrying about oxygen is because my hops, my precious hops. But that's no different than it's ever been. No, but uh, I will admit that <laughs> we're seeing some uh, some really interesting looking gadgets coming up now to make dry hopping without oxygen exposure possible. And I, I look at that and I go, huh, okay. As, as soon as I find that I have a problem with oxygen ex exposure, I'll start looking at that. Uh, until then, personally, I'm not worrying about it. Yeah, although at the same time, I will admit that I get why some people get on this train because you see a lot of photos of people posting, hey, here's my latest hazy IPA, for instance. And, of course, that style is notoriously sensitive to oxidation. Uh, and for whatever reason, so many of these photos I see, they aren't bright and clear. Instead, they're kind of mud and gray. <laughs> and I totally get why people are, if people are getting that sort of result when they're brewing them at home, I totally get why people are trying to find anything in order to kind of keep that bright orange, juicy, grapefruity character to the visuals of the beer and to preserve the hop character. But I think with a little bit of care, you don't need all the toys. And yeah, I'm saying I, that. That's, that's what I've found too. Let's talk a little bit about styles. <laughs> what we've, uh, what we've been noticing I think despite however many hardcore traditionalists amongst us have, have been crying for it, it is very, very apparent that the hazy IPA is here to stay. Uh, here to stay for now. Who knows what will happen going into the future? And we've had 
lots of beer styles that we thought were here to stay, and then they faded away. So, but for I, that, I think the hazy will be with us for a while. And the good news is, I think the ones that we're getting now are better. At least the ones I'm seeing down here usually have some bitterness attached to them, and they're not as thick and syrupy viscous. We've talked a lot about it, but the other thing that we've seen rise up has been the sort of new West Coast IPA. It was kind of a response to a lot of the hazy phenomenon. And I know, Denny, you and I talked about it, uh, I think, last year, and talking about the different IPAs, and it was like very clear to me that this was becoming a thing. And I don't know if it's you're seeing it more in your neck of the woods, but that sort of West Coast spin on a more hop aroma forward beer that's more friendly and less bitter. To some degree, although although around here, people are still embracing the bitterness, which makes me very, very happy. And also around you, uh, people are still embracing the idea of cold IPA, even if nobody can explain what it is. Well, and I'm seeing a lot less of it, too. I mean, you know, it, again, it's not gone away, but it has uh, really taken a nosedive. You're not seeing it uh, being nearly as ubiquitous as it was when it was the new hot, trendy thing. Yeah, it's certainly lasting longer than brewed IPA did, but um, <laughs> yeah, but I but not much. I mean, to me, it would be better if somebody could actually define what it is, you know, because like the original one was like, look, lager yeast, but warm, and then other people going, no, it's ale yeast, but cold, and no, it's just lagered IPA, and it's, it's hard to be a style if everybody's disagreeing on sort of the fundamental aspects. Yeah, of it. I I don't think it's a style as much as a. Uh I don't know what to call it. I think Jeff Allworth was the one who said that uh, cold IPA is not a style, it's a technique. Except that nobody can agree on what the technique is. Well, we'll just have to find it out. <laughs> Me, I'll just avoid it. We're still seeing seltzers, although now seltzers uh, going away, or not going away. The, the, the market has stalled for it, and it's being replaced by some of this uh, canned cocktail stuff. And the other thing I'm also not seeing is I'm not seeing everybody and their grandmother doing pastry stouts. Nope, nope. I'm still seeing a lot of hype, hype places doing pastry salads, but. Yeah, again, like the cold IPA, that's something else that is uh, still around, but a much uh, reduced amount. Yeah, except for there are some people who can still demand high prices for it, but a writer uh, who goes by the moniker of don't drink beer and does these really florid and wonderful uh, beer reviews. And the quote that just popped up literally the other day was, at this point, pastry stouts are the hallmark holiday movies of the brewing world. At best, they can come off as derivative. At worst, some sticky, sweet, overwrought treacle that you have to share with a lot of people to get any enjoyment out of. <laughs> yeah, because you can't drink much of it yourself. I th that, That's just a great quote, man. I, I love the uh, hallmark holiday movies of the brewing world. Yeah, if you haven't been following Don't Drink Beer, go follow Alex. And then something that makes me very sad is that uh, – you know, a lot of classic beers have been going away, and particularly uh, for my tastes, uh, Belgian beers just are not as ubiquitous as they once were. Uh, fortunately, we can brew them ourselves. Yeah, it is true. Like, I've been trying – so my job at the Maltos Falcons is I am the, I am the grand hydrometer, which is uh, a fancy way of saying I'm the guy who puts on the beer education. Anybody surprised? And I've been trying to do things where it was like earlier this year, hey, let's make Belgian pale ales and talk about Belgian pale ales. I couldn't find any Belgian pale ales to serve. Um, so that was a real problem. And I'm seeing it with a lot of retailers too. I've talked to them and they're like, yeah, we could buy them. They just don't buy, uh, they don't sell. 
So uh, we're seeing less and less of it, at least locally, and that makes me very sad. What doesn't make me very sad, though, is here I'm seeing the rise of the logger. Everybody's been talking about it forever and a day, but uh, I think COVID actually gave everybody enough time to properly do some loggers and then figure out, hey, you know, we could probably fit that into the logistics of the brewing schedule. And so we're seeing a lot more loggers down here in my neck of the woods. I don't know about up in your neck of the woods, Dinchenzo. Oh, yeah, yeah. But these happy hours I've been doing, the four packs of beer in tasting with people, yeah, almost inevitably the, the mixed pack is something like one lager or two lagers and two IPAs because um, modern American craft beer. And also seeing down here, very shockingly, a lot of Mexican lager takes. When you say one to two lagers, now – Loggers, I mean, that would be like saying one to two ales. So are, are you are you consistently seeing more of one type of lager than another? Uh, the three big ones that we've been seeing are people doing either some variation on a Mexican lager. And then even then you get the question of, is it a Negromadola style Mexican lager? Or is it more like Corona and Tecate? Then also we're seeing a lot of North German pills, and I think they're calling them North German pills because they want to be able to shove more hops into them. That's my excuse. The other one that we're also seeing is Hellas's. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I don't see a lot of Hellas around here. Uh, I, I do see a lot of Pilsners. And uh, at this time of year, I've been seeing some Doppelbachs and, and Dunkles showing up too. If anybody wants a good excuse to drive out to Moorpark, uh, just go listen to last year's episode that I did about the Christmas Bach from Ennegren. And I can tell you, it's back this year, and it's even maltier. <laughs> Good. But yeah, so we're seeing a lot of loggers down here that are coming up, and I'm happy to see it. Uh, and I'm also happy to report that I'm seeing a lot more of them being done well. I will take that. All right, and last, before we leave, I want to talk a little bit about culture and a couple of things that came into my mind. The biggest of which is actually you can go listen to Denny, Annie, and I just did a podcast with John Hall on his, I think it's on Drink Beer, Think Beer. I think it's all about beer, isn't it? Well, except for it's literally on drink beer, think beer from all about beer. Too complicated for me. The, the man's got like four podcasts. So we just did that and talking about the future of homebrewing. And one of the things I'm thinking about is that homebrewing is definitely in the niche right now. We're back to being sort of the weirdos, which I'm okay with. What I'm saying is it's the, we've talked about it before, the pizza shop effect. Where, you know, now every neighborhood has its own pizza shop slash brewery. And that can kind of impact a lot of people's potential enjoyment of the hobby or involvement in the hobby. Because why would I want to sit and take four to eight hours making a batch of beer when I could just go walk around the corner and plop my seat down and grab a pint of beer across the bar? Naturally, I think homebrewing cycles and tends to get better as economy tends to get worse. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. And that all assumes that you're homebrewing for the beer. Mm -hmm. And that is really not my incentive when I do it. I, I brew for the brewing and the beer is what happens when I do it. So for me, I don't care what's out there, what I can get easily. I'm going to keep brewing because I like brewing. Oh, I mean, I like just far, far off in my garage for a couple hours. I'll, I'll keep uh, bringing that. But the other thing I'll also say is the other reason to homebrew still is at least when I first got involved in homebrewing, it was defensive. Right. And what I mean by that is I can't get the beer I like here. So I'm going to go make my own. And in a way, we had mentioned it up there with the homebrew packs or with the happy hour packs. 
in a way, we've kind of gotten back to that because you walk into most craft breweries these days and it's like, here's one or two lagers and then a half a dozen IPAs and maybe a Belgian beer somewhere or a stout or one other thing that maybe has some color to it. And so, at least for me, since I love milds and saisons in addition to my IPAs and whatnot, um, I, I'm kind of finding myself defensively homebrewing again where I'm making some of these things that I can't find on the ready anymore. So going and making a mild and making it using the Chevalier malt so that it has a little extra oomph to it. These are things that I can do because I am a home brewer. And in fact, I rarely make IPAs these days just because they're so ubiquitous. And it's I can go right now I can go get a pack of celebration if I want. I'm brewing the things that I can't get. And truthfully, even in terms of the hoppy stuff right now, I'd rather be making a pale ale because I can't find that many of them. See, and, and I would say that IPAs are at least three quarters of what I brew, uh, if not more. Uh, the rest of it probably being Belgian styles. Uh, and the Belgians I brew because, like I said earlier, they're hard to find these days. And the IPAs I brew because I'm inspired by the commercial ones and I want to see if I can come up with something comparable in quality. Yeah, and say that's all that all comes down to motivation. But yeah, for me, like these days, a lot of times I'll, I may, most of the time, if I'm making IPAs, it's because I want to try a technique or I want to try a new hop variety or new hop product. If I, if I'm just wanting an IPA to drink, I almost inevitably end up buying it. And I feel you on the, on the Belgian angle though, because it's like, look, I want a triple. Ooh. Yeah. Right. I'm going to have to exactly. make one of those. Yep. Yep. Now, the other part, I wanted to talk about just a little bit is clubs. You know, as I said, homebrewing's always been a, a bit of a niche of a niche, and homebrew clubs have always been a niche of a niche of a niche. Say that five times fast, and I'll give you a prize. But one thing I've noticed is that post COVID, we're still having trouble really kind of getting the club activities really flowing again correctly and with all the activity that that, that you'd expect and that we had pre COVID. And I'm wondering if some of that is you know leftover pandemic anxiety. I'm also wondering if some of it's not influenced by the fact that there's so much information available online. Why should I bother schlepping myself over to a club meeting and talking with people and, and spending my afternoons doing that or evenings for a lot of homebrew clubs? You know, in, in a way, it's kind of like a catch-22. Uh, you know, the, the reason to be in a club is to interact with other people and have those activities. But the activities are what make it worth being in the club. So it's like, you know, where do you start that cycle? Yeah. And so it's very interesting. I'd be curious to hear from other people in their clubs if other clubs are seeing that same sort of problem or for the clubs that aren't seeing that sort of problem, what are you doing? What's the magic sauce? Um, One of the things that my club is doing this year is we all felt like during COVID, we got very good at being a drinking club, but not at being a homebrewing club. And so trying to do a lot of activities to sort of restart and re-encourage homebrewing. So I'll, I'll be curious to see what other people are experiencing. So let me know at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, please. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and last little bit of the bit of the thing today is homebrewing has always been a mix of art and science. Hence the idea of it being a craft, right? To me, crafts are always practical arts. And Denny, I know you had some thoughts about the whole science of everything. Well, in a way, I mean, I remember 
when we started this. Well, the the very name uh, experimental brewing comes from the fact that when we started, we were really into doing homebrew experiments and stuff like that. Um, and you know, I started doing them before a lot of the people who are doing them now. Um, uh, and, and kind of. Uh, inspired by some of the people 25 years ago who were doing a few, I decided I would try and take it farther. And that's, that's all very well and good. But I came to the realization one day that, you know, I wasn't really proving anything and that none of these homebrew experiments really did. They simply provide us with data points we can use in our own brewing and see how things work out. So, you know, I, I, I mean, what I say, and I've said this a number of times, is I learned the science and I came out the other side. And that's really what I advise everybody to do. Take a look at any homebrewing experiment or any homebrewing fact or any brewing fact or knowledge or whatever and try it yourself because the only science that matters is the science that works for you. Huh. If all politics are local, is all beer even more local? <laughs> yeah, all, all beer is so local, it's in your garage. <laughs> Denny, before we leave this 300th episode of the show. Oh, um, my God, I'm tired. Yeah, between experimental brewing and the brew files, any other thoughts that you want to share with the folks? I mean, it's not like you haven't had 300 episodes to do it already. <laughs> yeah. Keep brewing. Keep having fun. Because if you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. There you go. And, of course, don't forget, people. We can always use your ideas. We've been sitting here chatting, as we just said, for 300 episodes. So let us know what else you want us to talk about and what we can do to help expand your knowledge, our knowledge, anybody else's knowledge, or even just spread the word about good people doing good things around beer. So podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this trip in the Wayback Machine. It's been a long, strange one, but lots of changes over the years. Here's to 300 episodes, more lagers, more session beers, more hops, and yeah, even more ukulele along the rest of the way. Now remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at expbrewing on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew form known to mankind. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year, and really this is the last month for it, is the Pongo Fund, a food bank for pets in need. Until next time, remember, the brew is out there. And we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. This holiday season, give back to the brewing community when you join the American Homebrewers Association. From November 8th through December 15th, purchase an annual membership and the American Homebrewers Association will make a $5 donation to your choice of beer for boobs, Soldiers Angels Hops for Heroes, or the Michael James Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling. Learn more about these nonprofits and how to donate directly by visiting homebrewersassociation.org/slash experimental. And let's give back together. Yeah.